University of Texas has a slogan. Now, don't hiss. Okay, I know you Aggies. University of Texas has a slogan. What starts here changes the world. Have you, have you seen that? That's a little braggadocious, don't you think? Now, whatever your, uh, no, <laughs> the UT people say, well, whatever your college preference is, you know, my daughter graduated from UT, so I'm, I'm loyal through tuition. <laughs> but it's kind of a bold statement, but it kind of jumps out there that, okay, this is a statement that's declaring that something special's happened here. What about this quote? What starts here changes eternity. That's by Jesus Christ. That's a little bolder and a little truer. Uh, what starts in Texas may change the world. Of course, it may lead to unsurmountable student debt. But what Jesus does changes eternity. And what I want to say to you folks today is that as we start this series called Uncommon, I want you to realize that we are part of an uncommon thing. That God has moved in the lives of people to draw us into relationship with himself that we might change eternity, not just the world. Do you know that every one of you in this room are going to live forever? Did you know that? In fact, look at your neighbor right now and say, I can see eternity in your eyes. Some of y'all, that just went creepy, didn't it? It was like, okay, dude, back off, all right? Now, where you spend eternity is all hinged on your decision about Jesus Christ. But he says that he is God, God says this, that he's put eternity in the hearts of man, that we are created to live forever. And Jesus has started the church in order for us to live forever. This week, I'm taking a group of pilgrims, so I like to call them pilgrims. That was my John Wayne impression. Uh, we're going to the Holy Land. We leave on Thursday. Now, this is what I'm going to do for you. I've never done this before. I'm going to do it for you, though. Uh, I'm going to be posting videos on my Facebook page every day that while we're in the Holy Land. So you could go onto my Facebook page and track with me through the Holy Land. How does that sound? I might need to do a couple a day just to kind of encourage you. Now, some of you that have been before are going to go, yeah, I know where that is, and I know it's via Biden. Some of you, you want to go. Hopefully, this will spur you on to jump into the next adventure because I think every, every believer ought to go to the Holy Land. Now, very interesting. Someone said to me, uh, actually, was, uh, I'm not going to give you his name. I'll give you his initials, Wyatt Warren. He said this to me. He said, is the Holy Land trip, is the Israel trip a vacation for you or is it, a, is it work? I said, it's work because I'll be keeping up with those who will straggle behind us and I'll be making sure no one gets abducted no one gets uh, pickpocketed, which that probably won't happen anyway. And if they steal one of them, I'm sure that the terrorist will give them back very quickly. That's supposed to be funny. Obviously, it wasn't that funny. But, uh, and, but the inspiration in this, it's just an amazing trip. So I invite you all to go. And, and as we're there in the birthplace of this movement, we really see that this is a bold statement. What starts here changes eternity. And what Jesus started was the church. And he said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And see, Jesus is a master builder. So what he builds, he builds for eternity, not temporarily, not a five or 10 or 50 year warranty. 
but an eternal warranty. Now go ahead and take out your notes because I think I want you, you want you to jot these things down. See, the church of Jesus Christ has these things. It has the highest authority. Jesus has laid his authority on us. All authority has been given to Jesus, and then he gives that authority to us, his church. We have the highest authority. The authority of the church is greater than the government of the United States. It's greater. We have the greatest involvement. There are over two billion Christians in the world. Christianity is the largest single religious spiritual movement of mankind. It's greater than Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, whatever other kind of ism you have. Christianity, Christianity is the highest. We have the highest involvement. We have the longest history, 2,000 years of succession. Now you say, what do you say? It's got Buddhism is older, Confucianism is older, Shintoism is older, uh, Animism is older, of these, these other isms are older, but their history is not older. Founded 2,000 years of succession. Actually, it started when God created the heavens and the earth. We have the longest history. We have the clearest mandate. The clearest mandate is to be the hope of the world, to preach the gospel, to proclaim to the broken there is healing, to proclaim to the captive there is liberation, to, to proclaim to the grieving there is comfort. We have the highest mandate. I was cutting my grass Yesterday, uh, I have a new zero-turn lawnmower that descended on a cloud from heaven. And I love my lawnmower, and I grow rocks on my property. Do you guys grow rocks on your property? My lawnmower is not phased by the rocks, for it is a mighty chariot of grass-cutting delight. And on my lawnmower, I have a chance to reflect. And I was reflecting about us, about us. I said, what keeps us from fulfilling our mandate? And as the grass flew from the sides of this mighty machine, and my mind percolated with the thoughts, and I decided these things, it's the trivial nuance of preference that keeps us from fulfilling the great mandate of our great God. We're worried about what we sing, where we sit, what we wear, what we eat, how comfortable it is in the environment instead of the mandate of our mighty God to change eternity. Oh, we've grown small with a great mandate. We have the biggest influence. You see, because the Holy Spirit working in us motivates and moves people beyond our persuasion. We have the greatest power, the power of the great I am, the almighty God, the ancient of days, the one who is and will be and ever shall more be. We have the greatest power and we have the best outcome. I've read the end and we win, y'all. Yeah. In fact, next year, I'm going to do a series called um, See Forever. And we're going to do a series on eschatology. Do you know what that is? That's the study of the end of time. And I'm going to show you. I'll just skip to that. We win. Okay? A big time. It's a blowout. We win. But this is the church. And this is the uncommon movement of God. So over the next, these next weeks, we're going to enter into this season of seeing who we 
really are. Now, we get confused. We think the church is, well, it's an organization, but it's really a family. I had a, a, a hotly contested argument with someone not too long ago. The church ought to be run like a business. I said, we are in the most important business, the business of God, and business practices that are God-ordained will work. Business practice that are Harvard-ordained will fall on the rocks of ineffectiveness. The church is an institution when we're a movement. The church is a building when she is a people. Y'all have done this, right? Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open it up and see all the people. Heresy. Don't let your children do that. The church is irrelevant. I hear this over and over and over. The church is irrelevant when the church is really the hope of the world. The church is not irrelevant. I don't care what CNN says. The church is not irrelevant. I don't care what, what other publications, Politico, Vanity Fair, uh, Rikers, Rutgers, whatever, even Fox News. The church is not irrelevant. She's alive and well and kicking a dent in hell as we speak. We think she's feeble, weak, when she's not weak. She has not lost her, her effectiveness and she will last throughout all eternity. You know, I want to say this and I don't want you to be offended, maybe a little bit. But in, in a thousand years from now, there may not be a University of Texas. There may not be a, it may not be an A and M university, Texas A and M University. <gasps> what? There may not be a United States, but there'll be a church. They will be the church. It may not function in the same form we're experiencing now, where we gather together and placate our preferences and stroke our egos and walk out to live no differently. Well, maybe she'll be the effective devil-chasing, sin-erasing, eternity-altering church of Jesus Christ that she attended, and we have the opportunity to be that right now. Hmm. So as we start this journey over the summer, I pray it gets hot in here. Not hot with temperature, but hot with passion. Not hot because the Texas summertime is hot, as it should be, the Canadians complain about the heat to come, they down, come down here to melt. But us Texans are like lizards in the sun. We thrive when it gets hot. And I pray that we'll have a holy fire and a holy desire that says we are not going to be the same. Because come fall, we got big things to do. So we're in preparation for the uncommon. So let's start. You've heard me say this. It's not how you start. It's what? So we're going to look at the start of the church, and we are going to not yet look at the finish because we ain't done. But we're in the process of God moving in our lives, a movement in order to remain true to the intent of the movement, and that is to change eternity. What starts here changes eternity. So let's take a look. Let's go on the adventure of Uncommon, an Uncommon Start. Y'all ready? Father, thank you for what you're going to say to us this morning, and I pray that you'll speak through me, that I'll be my words or my thoughts, but your truth that leads us to understand what you want understood, that we might not just be hearers, but doers of what you say. Light a fire in us, Father, that eternity will not extinguish. 
And I thank you for what you're going to do. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So you got your notes out. You've already tried to doubt some things. Let's continue. I'm going to read for you out of Acts chapter 1. Now, I started to give you some history, kind of history about Acts and what was written. I was going to tell you that it was written by Dr. Luke, a physician who traveled extensively with Paul. He was also influenced by the, the disciples uh, and the apostles. He knew Peter, he knew James, he knew John. He was kind of a part of the early church. He's a physician. Some people think he might have been Jesus's personal physician, but Jesus don't need no doctor because he is the great physician. Luke, an educated man, a man of means, a man who had wealth, a man who wrote, and he wrote to his friend Theophilus, which Theophilus could be a person or it could be us because Theo means God and, and Philos means friend, friend of God. Theophilus, the friend of God, could be us. It could be a singular person. We really don't know. It really doesn't matter because he's writing all of that to you. I was going to tell you all about that, but I decided not to. But what I want to do is read to you and let's look together at what God is saying to us this morning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles who he had chosen. Now, listen, y'all, he had a group of people, about 120. They were disciples and apostles. They were different. The disciples were the ones that went with him. The apostles were the ones that he chosen out from them. And so he had the, the disciples and the apostles. And I want you to kind of keep that in your mind because he took these common, ordinary men and he invited them into the uncommon adventure of following him. And he took these men and he changed them forever. And we're going to see the process of that change as God moved to them. He presented himself alive to them after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying, staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Wait. Is it hard to wait on God? But waiting should never be passive. Twiddling our thumbs, playing solitaire, or candy crush. I know what y'all doing while I'm preaching, y'all. But waiting should be active in anticipation. Like I would wait for my mother to come home from the grocery store. There was nothing passive about it. Because in my anticipation of her arrival, my aggression about my consumption had escalated. <laughs> wait. So they had come together and they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the time or season that the Father has fixed for his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking, they were looking on. He was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up for you into heaven will come in the same manner as you saw him go into heaven. It's such a powerful beginning, but it wasn't the beginning. It was the, it was the middle. It was the start. The start of the new movement. Jesus came and he lived among us. 
sinless, the man-God, the God-man, perfect in his deity, perfect in his humanity, the clashing of the created and the uncreated. And he lived without sin and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. As John said, glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We were eyewitnesses, Peter said, to his majesty. And he he lived among us and he did these things and he challenged the authority. He took religion and he dashed it on the rocks of stupidity and he invited people into a relationship that changed them forever. And he said, now I'm going to begin something. But let me say to this, this is finished but unfinished business. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day he was taken up and after giving commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles we had chosen, he presented himself alive to them and suffered many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What did he finish and what was unfinished? You see, Jesus finished the work of salvation on the cross. It is finished. And we could say the kingdom of God has arrived. And actually, the kingdom of God did arrive with Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection ushered in the new kingdom of God. Now, now some of you are saying, oh, Scott, you're being a premillennial dispensationalist right now. Well, I don't care what you call me. I'm telling you what Scripture says. That he issued in a new era here. And that's the era of the church. And he had finished the work of salvation See, there is no salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter declared that in Acts 4, 12, that Jesus has finished the work. There's no addendum to you being right with God. It is finished. It has been done. It has been done. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Saved. For with the heart one believes it is justified, and with the mouth one confesses it is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jews and Greeks. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Wow. I think about this. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth. I remember that faithful night that I was believing in my heart that I loved Tara. Then I confessed with my mouth and we were changed. We were engaged. And now we're joined together in the wonderful bonds of holy matrimony for 38 glorious years. She's not here to debate that truth, but I'm going to stick with it. See, I believed in my heart and I confessed with my mouth. I remember when I was seven. Believed in my heart and I confessed with my mouth and God saved me. I watched this week as Vacation Bible School unfolded as a sweaty ball of experience in front of us. And I watched little kids believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. And I got to pray with some of them who believed in their heart and confessed with their mouths and they were saved. And that's awesome. Then they immediately want to talk about being baptized. And I told him, Papa Scott has never lost a person in baptism. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. I'm a highly trained professional. Scott the baptizer. And I think about this. This nothing is added. Jesus has finished the work in you when you called upon his name. He finished the work in you when you 
called upon his name. Isn't that kind of cool? And that's what I've discovered. That many Christians struggle with insecurity. They think they really didn't believe enough. They think they didn't really have a deep enough experience. And you know where that's coming from? Hell. Because Satan wants to fill you full of doubt and discouragement. If you could be filled with doubt and discouragement, you will be filled with ineffectiveness. But whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, period. Period. If you've trusted Jesus, you don't have to retrust him because he remembered the first time. Hmm. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a results of work, so that no one may boast. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. But there is unfinished business. The finished business of salvation has been completed, but there's unfinished business, and that's the business of you becoming like Jesus. Now, y'all think, well, I didn't know you were going to go there. That's right. That's why I do what I do. It's unfinished. You are not yet like Christ. Christ wants you to think like him, see like him, believe like him, speak like him, have his mind. He wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you're not there yet. You know how I know you're not there? Because you ain't dead. God keeps working on you. I remember when I was a young pastor right out of seminary, went to a deacon's meeting, and the deacon said, I haven't sinned in 20 years. He just sinned. He was so ignorant of Scripture, he didn't even realize that he was out of fellowship with God because he sinned. He wasn't unsaved, I don't think. But he sure wasn't in the confines of reality. That God is busy working on you. It's called the process of, big word, sanctification. What does that mean? Turning a sinner into a saint. And saints are dead. God wants you a dead saint and a converted sinner. And this is powerful truth. For God is works in you both to will and to and to work for his good pleasure, he says in Philippians. Listen to this. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to conform them to the image of his son in order that they, he might be the firstborn among many brothers, to conform you to the image of his son. You are supposed to be like Jesus. But there's more unfinished business, unfinished business. The business of bringing the world to himself, and that's called the kingdom of God. The business of one beggar telling other beggars where they found bread so they may eat that bread and drink that cup and then fulfill the promise of God and be saved and join the family of God. It's unfinished. Unfinished. Listen to what Matthew said in the Olivet Discourse. And this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, Jesus is not going to come back until the whole world has heard the gospel, every language, every people group. And missiologists are saying, you hear mixed numbers, but the latest missiologists I've heard said there are 3,000 people groups that have yet to hear the gospel. So what should we do? Finish the task. 
finish the task. Why are we training pastors to finish the task? That's why we're doing that. Why is this church in the hill country of Texas caring about churches in Africa and in Central America and in South America and caring about churches in, around us? Why, why are we doing that? To finish the task. I would kind of like Jesus to come back, wouldn't you guys? I mean, do we need to vote on this? No. That we would love to see him come back. And he would usher in his glorious reign in the eschaton. We'd love that. But we have to finish the task. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I look over here and I see some of my friends going with me to Israel. We're going to go to that place where he said that. Preach the gospel. Baptizing them, teaching them to obey watching God do what only he could do, finish the task. That's why we're strengthening churches. That's why we're doing this. Huh. In the late 1800s, there was a group of missionaries from a movement called the Christian Missionary Alliance, started by A.B. Simpson. The Christian Missionary Alliance, they wanted to finish the task in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s. And so they said, we're going to go to the hardest places. We're going to go to the places where no one's heard the gospel. Places like Indonesia, Bali, Thailand, Vietnam. We're going to go to those places. Places like in Africa, like Congo, those places. We're going to go to the hardest places. And they started a college up in Nyack, New York. And this group of pastors and missionaries were being trained to go finish the task. Five families, five families, volunteered, signed up to go to the Congo. They go to the Congo. All five families die, all of them. They all die. Y'all die. Africa's a great place for white folks to die, y'all. And they all die. Word comes back to Nyack College that they all died. 15 more families packed their belongings in their coffins and went to the Congo. And the Conga, Conganese Christian Missionary Alliance Church is the largest gathering of the denomination of Christian and missionary alliances in the world. I had the chance to train their pastors. Over 5,000 pastors, many of them walked, walked, walked for two days to come listen to training to be equipped to be effective pastors. They packed their belongings in their coffins. And we complain if we run out of pigs in a blanket. That's the uncommon start. Wait for the promise. As I was preparing this talk, I wrote out some thoughts, and the thing that jumped out at me was this wait thing. Wait, why can't God wear a watch? Does he not have a, I've got, we need to buy him an iPhone where it'll give him alerts. Wait for the promise. And while standing there, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you had heard from me for John baptized with water and you'll be baptized with the Holy spirit. Not many days from now. And they're going, what, what does this mean? Not realizing that the night he was betrayed, John wrote this down that Jesus said, Hey, I'm going to send you the paraclete, the comforter, the one who comes alongside, the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you. He's going to, he's going to work in you. I'm going to send this to you. 
you, you got to wait for it. One of the hardest things we could do is wait. Wait. I remember waiting on Tara to give birth. Just wait. Wait. Uh, Tara was waiting too. Our, our kids weighed almost 10 pounds apiece. Wait. Wait. Waiting for children to come back in repentance. Waiting. Waiting for the bank to say it's good. Waiting for the lawyers to leave you alone. Wait. Wait. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Wait. Wait. And Jesus promised, and he will deliver. And I don't know what you're waiting for God to do, but he promises you, and he will. Never doubt in the dark what God has revealed to you in his light. Y'all might want to write that down. I'll post it on my Facebook this week. Never doubt in the dark, in the darkness of depression, the darkness of doubt, the darkness of defeat. Never doubt in the dark what God has promised in his light. And this is what he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I've never seen my righteous one beg for bread. I'll always be with you even to the ends of the ages. My grace is sufficient for you. When you fall under temptation, I'll provide a way of escape for you. I will never give you more than I can handle, God says. Wait. They didn't know their lives were about to be flipped and changed. They didn't know they were about to be swept up, swept up in a movement that changed the whole world. You see, God's promises will always exceed your expectations. God's promise to this church will exceed our expectations. A couple of years ago, we went to an exercise called the game plan. Do y'all remember that? Some of y'all do? You with me? We had ice cream afterwards. You remember the ice cream, but you don't remember the plan. And we had a long list of vision. You know what? Many of those things we declared we wanted to see, God has done them. God has done them as he's exceeded our expectations. They were confused about the kingdom of God. They thought it was some kind of political movement. And the early church was not confused. They knew that it was the movement in the hearts and lives and souls of men and women. They knew it wasn't a theological, political movement of, of world domination. They knew that. But somehow along the way, about 300 years in, they forgot that. And then Constantine made Christianity the national religion of Rome, and then Christianity became then institutionalized. It became a religion when God said, I don't like religion. I want relationship. I want a movement. I don't want an institution. I don't want a denomination. I don't want, I don't want these things. I want a movement. I want my people who are called by my name to humble themselves and seek, seek my face and, and pray, and I will answer them. I want them to be the hope of the world. I want them to, to depend upon me for the next breath they take. Depend upon me to be the strength that sends them out. Depend upon me to be the one who will hold them and comfort them and challenge them and convict them. I want to be that movement in them. But you turn it into a religion of ritual and, and rites and sacraments. When Jesus says, I am your sacrament. I am your right. I am your religion. So you live all for me, me and me alone. The movement of God. The movement of God. 
The kingdom of God is within the hearts of the transformed lives of men and women, boy and girls. It's not a geological location or a political system. It's the ecclesia, the movement of God. Wait. But they were given uncommon power. Are y'all with me so far? Uncommon power. But you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Because the fire I've lit in you will rage from you. And the heat of the experience with me will overflow in the persuasion and the pronouncement of my marvelous power. You will be because I am. Wow. And the power was the purpose to finish the task the task of bringing the gospel to the world, but the task of making me like Jesus. The power came at Pentecost, and your power comes at salvation. When you receive Jesus, you get all of him you're going to get. I'll say it this way. You get the full dose of the Holy Ghost when you get saved. Now, the question is, does the Holy Ghost get all of you? So live in power. This is what the Holy Spirit does for you. He helps you to understand Scripture. He convicts you of sin and rebellion. He brings comfort and healing. He bonds us together as a family. The Holy Spirit bonds us together as a family. He teaches you what to say when it's needed, and he seals you for heaven. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Notice the process. The power to proclaim in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Now live all for Jesus. Now when they heard these things, they were looking on. He lifted up in the clouds and took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I love this. They stood there, and so do we. We hear the commands, and we stand there with our mouths gaped open when our feet ought to be engaged in going. You see, what stops us is our start. Don't you think this is time for this church to take serious the claims of our great God? I believe you are, and I believe you have been, but I believe we could throw some gas on the fire. Would you agree that we might be the church? You see, when you begin the uncommon start, it changes your life for an uncommon finish. Because what starts here changes eternity. All for Jesus. Jesus.